If you're enjoying the show, don't miss an episode. Subscribe via eveningskingdom.com and I'll send you a note each time a new episode is out. And, you know, in the great grand someday, should this epic quest ever become a traditionally published book for you to hold in your hands and enjoy, I'll email you and let you know. This is an epic quest across an ancient, magical kingdom as Uma, a reluctant young shaman, seeks her revenge against the king who killed her family. But, guided by otherworldly allies and unlikely friends, Uma unlocks a whole new world. Evening's Kingdom, written and read by Paula Schmidt. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Coming to you once again from the psychedelic yet pleasingly tidy interior of Psychedelicious Lex's Closet in Denver, Colorado. We continue. Chapter 52 Kestrel's mother, Blodwin, was unusually tall. She had long, elegant limbs and a powerful stride that was visible even as she descended from her royal carriage, disgraced in ropes. Her dark, haughty eyes flashed merrily over the humble land of her birth, as once they had flashed over the palace grounds, and her lover, the king. She had only just learned she would die today, but that was no matter. For Blodwin was warlike and loved a good fight. Good odds had nothing to do with it. She was born and raised in these hills, not even in the village proper, and her fierce beauty was that of a blood-mad Helahawk. With her hands tied before her, she strode barefoot, refusing to wear sandals as if the guards were mistreating her. The men continued trying to shoo her, even as they escorted her towards the village, but Blodwin smiled, kicking them away. I will touch the face of my birthplace while I can. Worthless dogs. Watch your teeth, boy. She draws blood, the captain said, still holding his arm. It was sore with the raw, ugly marks she'd bit into him earlier when he'd bent too close as he tied her hands. Even through the captain's thick cloak, Blodwin had managed to gash open his skin. And blood much finer than yours have I tasted, Blodwin said now, lunging after him again. Your mouth will be full of it tonight, lass, but you'll only be tasting your own. I say watch her, soldier. Blodwin only laughed at him, wiping her mouth prettily on her own shoulder. <sighs> Must be half-blood-eater, the captain said. And from the hills, too, he dared not add. For the hills were all around them now. And she was beautiful, the way demons are beautiful. Perhaps I am, she said. Her oligarch, Belvo, interrupted them calmly. Child, have grace. Even though Blodwin was fully a woman, at the sound of her oligarch's voice, instantly Blodwin's radiant face swept clean of any expression. She fell silent, lifting her chin as they strode into the well of skulls with the air of a descended goddess, nodding serenely to the villagers, who now stood in the road, cheering to see her. They dropped to their knees as she passed, asking her for blessings, and Blodwin nodded down lovingly, deigning to bless this one 
and that one, as though she were swinging a censer. She spoke rhythmically, bless, 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 she said. The faces Blodwin knew to be no older than her own, but wizened by sun and hardship. Here and there, she recognized a face from her girlhood. There was mischievous Hala, looking handsome as always, and an irritable but generous baker who'd always snuck her sweets that her mother could ill afford. Behind her, her oligarch, Belvo Blodwin, walked calmly, wearing her ropes with such dignity they almost seemed ornament. A sturdy, dignified older woman, like all oligarchs, Belvo had carried the name of her venerated charge since Blodwin was presented to the king as a girl. Yet, Belvo had long mastered the art of floating above such worldly concerns. She lived by the warrior's code, as if already dead. Solemn and last of the damned came Kestrel's oligarch, his face turned to the ground. He'd not spoken since the death of his beloved charge and had but one thing left to tell the world. The soldiers felt uneasy escorting their charges. So recently they'd paraded and faded them all with pride. To escort Blodwin and her oligarchs now to an ignoble death seemed unfathomable. And yet, this was not theirs to fathom. And so the soldiers made their faces still, and they thought instead of the feasting and excitement the day's blood would bring. Chapter 53 Always the processionals traveled with fine cooks, for any task marches on its stomach. A great quantity of the wagons were of cookstuffs, caged rabbits and sundry fowl for both eggs and flesh. And as always, with any royal yang procession, a herd of extra lopes were trailed too for the slaughter. As cookfires were leavened with mesquite, the butchering of animals began, and the soil blacked with their blood as soldiers sang, building up an arena of brambles and a great central platform of mudded bricks. Meanwhile, the Chiriclos sallied forth with their wares and dancing curiosities, which included a small young dancing man waving the stumps of his legs about to much shouting and clapping. The villagers of the Well of Skulls feasted grimly. They ate trenchers of pemmican and milk, roasted birds stuffed with smaller birds and then a smaller bird within that, so that every bite produced a wonder of sweetly striated flesh grooved with fat nut and savory stuffings. Yet mouths spoke not of food, but of Blodwin's dishonorable treatment. Tensing's disgraced queen sat proudly atop her platform, well above the soldiers and the dust. She was tied hand and foot, like any common criminal. Noble Blodwin, their pride and joy for so many harvests. Kestrel did something terrible at court. No. I heard them talking. One of the villagers said. Another one broke in. Tried to assassinate the king himself, she did. With Blodwin's blood in her, that girl was strong, capable of anything she was. Blodwin is too, to be sure, the first villager said. There were murmurs of assent. They'd seen courtiers and courtesans punished. And of course, anyone who abused a lizard. But a queen? Surely... Their Blodwin was too clever to have ever tried anything that would culminate in her own execution. The villagers drank their milk and only became more sour themselves. As if sensing the dark turn in festivities, 
the Chiriklo entertainers faded away, and finally, the executions began. The villagers crowded in, roasted meat in their hands, their mouths glossy with grease and gossip. The huge golden Chiriklo executioner mounted the platform, slamming his great staffs into the ground before it, one after the other. Today, here dies Blodwin, for disgraceful conduct unbecoming of a holy consort, and so too die the oligarchs of her house and ends her family forever. The wind lifted, and the scalps on the staffs lifted like the wings of birds. Tolu tied the two oligarchs together, bicep to bicep, at one of the staffs, and then made Blodwin fast to the other, so that their oligarchs faced their disgraced queen. Which of you is senior? Tolu asked the oligarchs, although it was clear Belvo was the more venerable of the two. Belvo lifted her face, but said nothing. You will receive a blade, Tolu said, and may make one cut. You may disembowel your queen, Blodwen, or your friend, Oligarch, or yourself. The two remaining will die by my hand in the manner of my choosing. So decreed King Tensing, long live the king. Still, Belvo said nothing. Tolu placed the blade in her bound hands, using a staff to guard himself from her. Then he cut her ropes. Belvo surged forward to Blodwen and ended her queen. As Kestrel's oligarch suddenly cried out, The king must die! Sacrifice him to end the drought! The crowd roared. Soldiers smashed backwards, holding the villagers where they stood. Tolu was gagging Kestrel's oligarch as Belvo turned, blood running down her ropes, and rent the other oligarch in two. Tolu beat her about the head with his club until Belvo fell, releasing her blade. He kicked it off the platform as he tied her again. Hail to my queen, old Belvo said to dead Blodwin. Would that I could kiss you goodbye, but we will meet again. Silence! Do you want to meet Goddix with a rag in your mouth? Tolu shook his head. Now you must suffer doubly for what you've done. He straightened, and the crowd screamed for blood. The king must die, said a small voice among them, and the soldiers pounced. He was only a small boy, but his eyes were as fierce as raised fists, and not once did he look down as Tolu made the sign for him to be brought into the arena as well, to the hisses of the crowd. The oligarch and this boy are to be drawn and quartered and then cut until dead. Tie them. Tolu stood back grandly, his face impassive as Belvo was tied hand and foot between four catlings, and then the boy was tied equally so atop her. Good, he said. Bring me grease. The grease was brought. Tolu poured it on the boy, who wept. He lit them on fire. The catlings bolted, screaming, flaying up the ground until the limbs of the condemned wrenched apart, and Belvo lay dying in the arena center, and Tolu knelt, quickly cutting her into two. But then the executioner leapt back. For in the puddle of woman before him, her insides were not as they should be. Fat lungs as gray as fishes, and the red, quieted heart, these were all as they should be, but the spleen, the stomach, the intestines, all were reversed and housed on the wrong side within her, 
Belvo's body interior was a perfect reflection of the interior of the dead Queen Blodwyn. Hollow wrenched forward over the brambles. The oligarch was a human seeming, not a human being. This is an ill, a very ill omen. She should not have been killed. Peace, Hala, one of the older men said, holding the master of ceremonies back. For the soldiers came closer as Helahawks circled them like falling ashes. Behind them, another voice rose, Death to the king! And then another, Kill the king to end the drought! Sacrifice him to Goddix! More voices raised, Quickly, Toulouse swept off the Drop stage, his skull in the lifting well. up his staff so that Blodwin and the ruined oligarch fell flat onto the platform. Their outcries instantly forgotten, the villagers flooded in to take trophies off the corpses, and Toulouse gave a quick nod to Fern as he leapt over the bramble and she fled towards their wagons. The villagers rioted, their faces muddy with blood as some began waving bones and bloody cloth in the air, relics they would tend on their family altars for generations. Those at the exterior of the frenzy, unable to reach anything for themselves, took up a new cry, drop the executioner's skull in the well. But Tulu was already clear of the bramble wall, and suddenly one of the village rooftops behind them burst into flames with a roar. There was confusion as half the villagers began to tumble over one another, screaming towards the fire, while the others went on scrambling for souvenirs. And then another rooftop caught fire, Uma turned and fled behind the rest of the Chiriclo. Now only Tulu remained. He bent behind the Yang cook wagon he'd been watching closely all day. And there, just as he'd expected, cowered the courier, Cyan. We have unfinished business, boy, Tulu said. Did you think I wouldn't mark your every move today? What? Cyan said. My fee, Tulu said. It is not on me, Chiriclo, Cyan said. Then we will go to it, or you will come with me, Tulu said. The boy pointed at his captain's carriage. Tulu clicked his tongue. Did I not tell you to have it ready for me? Cyan only froze, pale with fear. And Tulu sighed and swept him up in one arm, carrying him towards the carriage. The Yang guards jolted their weapons at him. Halt! Who hails? Cyan stammered and could say nothing. I'll hail the king, of course, Tulu said. This man, he said, jabbing at his own chest, has performed a service for the king and will now be paid. I am Tulu, the Chiriclo executioner. The carriage door was open to reveal a captain who was napping. Captain, sir, Cyan said. My fee, Tulu said. The captain blinked and fumbled. Uh, the executioner, of course, of course. The sack was heavy, nearly the size of Cyan's head, and the boy soldier goggled at it as it changed hands and then quickly disappeared into Tulu's cloak. I thank you, Tulu said, and now I shall return your soldier to the fray. The captain began to close the doors. Mm-hmm. Very good. See that you do. Tulu turned and threw Cyan towards the village. You have a role to play yet, soldier. See it all the way through. Help save these people from the death you brought to their doorsteps. But it is not my village, Cyan said. Well, you're Yang, aren't you? I thought you people were one for all, all for one, eh? Tulu booted the boy forward. Even beasts like us, Chiriclo, 
will gladly die fighting for our pack. Fern came roaring up in Tolu's wagon, Lama Dose. Come on, Tolu, she said, slowing the lopes down just enough for Tolu to leap up onto the sideboard, saluting Cyan as they swung away, racing after the rest of their caravan. Cyan crouched in the tall grass, crawling away as quickly as he could. He watched as Hala and the villagers tamed the fires, heaving up great bags of dirt across the flames. His skin itched. His pounding heart made it difficult to sit still and hide. Why should he have to choose a side anyway? He waited for Tolu's retreating caravan to finally rattle from sight. And then, Cyan ran the other way. As Gila Hawks ate the eyes of Blodwin and her oligarchs, and the riot raged, soldiers eclipsing villagers, and dust quenching the flames. Chapter 54 Nor Certainty, it is said, is for those who are about to die. But the foreknowledge came to Nor at dusk. It came to him and would not leave, a certainty that Nezmi was to be killed. You are restless, Highness, where Rothwau said. Perhaps another smoke bath is in order? The old man was slurping up his breakfast and paused to laugh. He seemed almost to leer at Nor, his long, prehensile lips, like an old man's mudflower, pursed fatly between slack, wobbling cheeks. Nor pushed his bowl away and stood up. He'd never felt a premonition in his life. Not like this. He knew he was insane or correct. But either way, he knew he could tell no one. He was like a strung bow in his urgency, yet he could not leave until after evening ceremony, for he would be missed. But immediately thereafter, Nor raced to the stables and ordered two catlings be dressed in racing harnesses. And where will you be off to, your highness? said the stable girls, currying the animals gracefully. Nor tried to wink. Just a jaunt. They tittered. Perhaps some company, then? He tried not to pace, not to rush them, not to rouse any suspicion. But his terror for Nezmi was like a heartbeat in his mind. Nezmi, Nezmi, Nezmi. Nor teased them. You should be so lucky. Perhaps later. By the light of the moon, your highness, they said. He nodded tensely, and finally he was off. The devouring certainty ate all through him now, and Nora thought he might be too late. He crouched atop his catling with the stringer fast behind, racing down the wide, shell-strewn path of the grounds back towards the jungle. The gates were thrown open for him hurriedly. After all, a prince might do whatever he liked, and the soldiers clicked themselves upright seeing him pass, looking after him as he raced away with wonder. Now that Nor journeyed alone, the jungle rustling either side of the bridge seemed sinister and not joyous. He spelled the first catling mid-bridge. The animal was staggering, lame and exhausted, or both. Nor leapt from its back to the other and whipped it forward, and then heard, as he shot forward on the fresher animal, a terrible scream behind them. He turned to see gigantic jaws rear back up into the night. A massive golden eye looked down at him from the blackness. In its mouth was a screaming catling. Battling and squalling, the catling's claws were useless against the scaled lips of the huge reptile. The beast swallowed, and the catling was gone. They ran. 
nor were sure any moment teeth would bite them in two, seize them into the air. When the catling's feet touched the gnarled ground on the other side of the bridge, nor almost screamed with relief. He hugged the animal's neck and they ran on without pausing. He'd not known such monstrous beasts even existed. All around them now were the screams and rustlings of night-coming things as the moon swept on, traitorously beautiful, across the dark expanse above them. He imagined it was the eye of Godex, protecting him with their gaze as they rushed home. As the fields of humble mud domes rose into nobler dwellings carved of stone, nor spurred the cattling up into the rising, silent streets, grateful for the sleeping humanity as it thickened all around them. And finally, the exhausted cattling was staggering up to the palace gates, collapsing, its claws bloodied, its head lolling, almost blind with exhaustion. And Nor leapt down. Open the gates, he said, and someone see to this animal. Chapter 55, Andahar after they left the Well of Skulls, the Chiriclo curved far afield of their planned journey, venturing deeper into the dangerous heat of the singing sands rather than the trade route Ogodai had originally planned. This meant they were less likely to encounter other Chiriclo, but it could not be helped. For as long as possible now, they would need to avoid both soldiers and villages. Uma was wistful. Will the Yang murder their king, do you think? Arayaku shrugged. I understand less about the Yang every day. She took his hand. Whatever happens, I think Hala will stay safe. I don't know why I think that, but I do. Arayaku squeezed her fingers. They watched in silence as great cliffs formed on the horizon. Day by day as they journeyed, the silhouettes sharpened, clawing higher towards the sun. Wait till you see Chalice, Arayaku said. The great oculus mountain above the palace is the spindle to the spinning wheel of the sun itself. Oh, Uma leapt up on her jump board, startling her lopes. Look, look over there. Arayaku borrowed Silvern so often that Uma had refashioned her saddle, placing two looped leather straps on either side for him to slip the remnants of his thighs into if he wished. But more often, the acrobat used the loops to catapult himself up into the air down around Silvern's belly, only to pop up again, as he did now, making Uma laugh. I'll be damned, Arayaku squinted. Do you know? That has to be. Uma's eyes shone. It is. I'd know the work of my people anywhere. Arayaku called back to Ogodai and Tolu, who were riding herd. You guys see that? Ogodai shaded his eyes, already studying it. I see it, but it can't be. Arayaku smiled. Yet it is. The storm pulled back her veil. Tolu laughed, pleased to be surprised for once. I always figured Andahar to be just a story. Arayaku nudged Silvern up into a run. Not everyone only tells lies, old man. He swept past Uma. Well, come on, girl. What are you waiting for? Arayaku nudged Silvern into a run. Chapter 56 Uma Uma and Arayaku ran laughing towards the dead city, becoming serious only in its shadow. As they drifted between the towering remains of Andahar's gates, Uma reached out to stroke one of the great monoliths of stone. It was water cool, 
grooved to the touch from a thousand years of sandstorms and ceaseless winds. In places, it was still marked by ancient artillery, huge sockets she could have fit her head inside. Stonework stood broken and half-drowned in the sand alongside primeval statues scoured blind. Now and again, Silvern's claws struck against what Uma knew was bits of broken ceramic in the sand. Old pots and children's toys. She was trying not to remember. But sometimes, her mind had a mind all its own. It flashed her back to the kind gatekeeper Kojo, parting the long-ago gates of Ulali so she could dash inside and be with her aunts. Isla dead on the ground behind her, and her aunts all still alive and waiting. She stopped, and Oriaku walked on ahead of her. Uma allowed herself this indulgence, to look at her memory as if it were a sparkling chip of mica held up to the sun. Her aunts still alive, their smiling faces, and how everything had been. And just a little further back, when her mother was well and laughing, in her memories, they were all still alive, at least. That made one place in the mystery where it was so. Uma wiped her face and made herself refocus, witness what was all around her. She wondered, as the Yang's royal embassy approached these ancient gates with their military arrayed behind and beside them so long ago, how long did the great Wutar city of Andahar keep herself open to them in warm welcome? After all, in those bygone days, their lady was queen, married to the king of Tensingland, and Wutar had no reason to fear Yang. Back then, the two kingdoms were allies. The two friends dismounted, and Arayaku smiled back at Uma gently as their animals moved towards the shade. How are you holding up over there? She stopped again. The walls all around them were cool as a tomb, and everything was silent but for the sands, coiling in and out endlessly through the blinded remnants of windows, rooms, dreams of an exterminated people. The vanished blues and seagrass greens which once curved into doors, windowsills, walkways, mazy arteries of friendships and inclinations. The sands whispered of a thousand years of learning, of generations of children bursting outside to play, and lovers clasping their last glances, of olders savoring their hot tea, all of them now gone. Uma stood looking, and if she'd meant to speak, to answer Arayaku's question, she could not. These soaring turrets and crumbling, archlit alleys, the cylindrical dwellings clustered like bird nests all along the courtyard as it ambled into what was once a lively Medina. Arayaku hung back, watching his friend drift into the crumbling remains of an alley probably not unlike that of her youth, as if she herself were dissolving into a vanished world. A shiver flickered through him. The indignity of death, grinding away what was once vaulting ambitions, joy and culture into, and this was the horror of it, enemy sand. He looked at Silvern. What is forever to a catling, I wonder? Silvern wuffed softly at his hands. Arayaku tapped him forwards gently. Well, go on, follow her, you big beast. Uma needs you. Andahar. It was one of the greatest massacres in all of known history. As the Wutar people built their empire up from sand, 
using three parts sand tiles to one part lime. So now, the sand drank back the blood of the people. The story was so old, it seemed like myth. Long ago, in the first of times, when the Yang Kingdom was young, the Wutar vampires were celebrated for their beauty, strength, and wisdom. They disdained warfare and were glad to trade and learn alongside their sibling tribe, the Yang. Often, the Wutar villages hosted Yang explorers as one brave band after another sojourned past what would become Andahar, all the way across the singing sands to see what they could see. After many generations of friendship, in a much-hailed union of the two great nations, the beautiful shaman queen, Ulalum of Andohar, married the Yang king, Vaiko Tensing, and for many years, both their kingdoms prospered, until their children fell sick. Now, Ulalum had golden eyes, just like Uma's. As any Wutar would have done in those days, Ulalum bit each of their children, walking the blood road in search of their healing. But one by one, each child died. They were not for this world, my lord, Ulalum said. But King Vieko would not be calm. He loved his lady Ulalum, but he loved their children more. In a rage, he beheaded her right there in their children's sickbed and ordered all of Andahar be put to death that same day and every Wutar all across his kingdom. As one body, the Yang corralled the peaceful, astonished Wutar into cages and executed them, youngest to eldest, until finally, only the last of each great family stood in great lakes of blood beneath the Yang sky. Then it was King Vieko himself who finished them, the wise olders who were his friends and guides, crumbling down onto their knees into the sands muddied with viscera, while soldiers cheered him on. May Godex return you to hell, to hell, to hell. Once, Andahar was the most powerful dynasty in the world. Now the sun on the horizon hung pale and cool above her corpse like the press of a mother's touch against flushed skin. And the skeleton turrets were watchful, gazing down at the Chiriclo as they made their camp outside the ghost empire, their night fire spicing the air. The children played lie and fable, now and again turning the cooking pots with a rock to help heat the stew all the way through, while their parents fussed and mended and talked. The evening danced with heat, and starlight seemed to ripple in water currents of deepening light. As if their flames could only grow tall enough, the starlight itself might melt down into their cooking pot, and then they would eat up its riches and never be hungry again, grow old or die. So Tolu told them. Their fire burned, joyfully impudent outside this valley of the dead. Theirs was a moving village, free to drift with the seasons, just as the ravens did. And the children knew this was the greatest wealth of all, their freedom. But the dead walls of Andahar had seen merchant villages before. They knew this was no country for dreamers. This was a country for sand. Sooner or later, everything became sand. Even empires, and especially dreamers. The great bones of fallen Andahar stared out sightlessly into the night. 
Chapter 57 What do you think, Silvern? Does it feel like home? Uma's catling came padding after her into the Medina. She was relieved to have his company. You can almost smell the cook fires. The little ponds of stockfish, she said, bending cautiously to peer in through a low doorway into what was once a kitchen. Dust fell down in veils from the ceiling. See there, she said, as if Silvern were Isla. As if they were children together again, for just a moment more, as more dust fell in great curtains to the ground. That's where they'd sit down to eat, the whole family. And here, this is where she'd sit to brush her hair, talking to the fruit seller's daughter before bed. Uma ran her hand along the windowsill. Except that we're too late, you and I. Much, much too late. She stood, willing the past to return, to rise up around her again. Silver nudged Uma's arm and rested her shoulder against his cheek, stroking between his ears. You're right, my friend. Despite the way it ended, I think mostly they were happy here. And I feel that. I do. Silvern sighed against her. She looked at him. You're right, I'll think of that instead. With a sigh, Uma reached into her cloak and pulled out her fang oil. There was only a small, precious smudge of fragrant resin left. She smelled it one last time, and then, gently, laid it on the windowsill, imagining as they walked away the ghost of a girl rushing towards it with pleasure, and the girl's family arrayed behind her, cooking and laughing while the others leaned out into the alleys calling home their children, their beloveds, their chickens and catlings, all of them rising up behind them like a stage, and if only Uma did not turn to look back, they would go on living behind her forever. Ogodai and Tulu sat by the night fire, warming their hands, watching Uma's silhouette among the ruins late into the night. Finally, she came galloping back across the sand towards them, beaming. Bring the water carriers! I've found a cistern! Chapter 58 Mariaku was drunk. I have to tell you something important. He leaned back grandly against Uma's wagon wheel, settling into the warm sand beside it. Are you listening, Fern? Do you know even where that expression comes from, knock on wood? It's to distract the trees from what you're saying, so they won't hear you. Fern was horrified. I didn't mean it like that, I just said it for luck, she said. Arayaku rolled his shoulders luxuriantly, cracking his neck. Oh, this wood's dead anyway, so it ain't talking. But I love the trees, Fern said. I never want to say anything they can't hear. Arayaku burped and sighed happily. It's okay, girl. How are we to know if we're never told? I never know what I'm going to say until it's out of my mouth. Sometimes I just sit around and listen to myself. I could be perfectly happy on my own, you know. Uma laughed. I bet you didn't know you were going to say that till just now, did you? Arayaku drank again before passing her the milk bag. Ha! My truth tellers. As I was saying, Fern, you lovely girl, we must never, ever lie to the trees. Ugh, here comes your dad. Ah! Go away, old man! Arayaku drummed his hands on the ground, laughing like a boy. We are communing! 
Ogodaya looked down at them tiredly. You are much too young to tell me what to do. Fern giggled. Father, have you met Arayaku? Father, this is Arayaku, our nosy and opinionated dear friend. Most esteemed Arayaku, allow me to introduce you to my nosy and controlling father. You guys should talk about the best thing you ever found out that you weren't supposed to know about. What have you three been into? Ogodai said. Mmm, honey. Arayaku scratched his shoulder against the wheel. We are getting in trouble till the birds come home. Ogodai looked up at the empty dark sky. I believe the birds are all long home. Arayaku grinned. But guess what day today is? It's the day I drank the rest of this. Uma grabbed for the milk bag too late. Wait, she said. But maybe that's tomorrow? Nope, I checked. It was now, Arayaku said, liquid running down his cheeks. She pulled the milk bag free. Well, at least save me some. It's mine. I've seen enough, Ogodai said. Fern, we're off. You have chores in the morning, as do these miscreants, but that's their own folly. You two are up to no good. That's just my face, Arayaku said, dissolving into helpless laughter with Uma as Ogodai left with Fern. Arayaku wiped his eyes. Oh, well, he said, once he'd caught his breath. The most important thing is we're having fun. Uma hugged him. Let's tell all the trees. Chapter 59 Tulu and the Tale of Leaves Mine, Lo said, thieving up his brother's toy, and little Ogodai, called Ogo, burst into tears. It was a bit of root Tulu had carved to look like a catling, a crouching thing with glittering seed eyes and a long curving tail. It was Ogo's favorite toy in the whole world. Boys, said little Laura. Then their brother Kizzy rumbled in on it too, he and Lo tossed the toy over Ogo's head as the smaller boy cried from one to the other. Boys, Lalora said again. Enough! Tulu scooped it up and dangled it over them. Well, looky at this. He tossed it from one hand to another. Is it mine? Mine, the boys all said. Let's see, Tulu said. I'll tell you a story, and then we'll decide whose it is. Deal? The children nodded and scrambled all over him vying to be closest. Ogo's plump little hands pressed like stars against Tulu's chest, and Lalora and Shenandoah hid their smiles. Once upon a time, in the first of times, Tulu said, booming his voice as if for an entire arena, and the sound of it almost shook Ogo off, laughing. There was a girl, Tulu said. She goes off running through the grasslands, and she's all excited because she's off to visit her secret catling. Except, who does she see when she gets there? Her own sister, riding her secret wild catling. The very catling she thought belonged to her and her alone. Worst of all, they saw her and waved. Traitors. So, she sinks back down behind these stones, feeling her heart fall down sad while all around her, the leaves are falling, tickling her nose, tickling her face. Tulu tickled low, making him squeal. She tried to cry, but they kept tickling her, tickling her nose and her face. Tulu snaked his hand out to tickle Fern. She burst out laughing, startled and pleased. 
But then, remembering her new womanly seriousness, she quickly made her face back into a mystery. What do you want? said the little girl to the leaves, finally. Because she knows magic when she sees it. And sure enough, here comes one of the leaves, drifting right into her own hand. Come with me, he says, and the girl looks around. Now she's supposed to be doing her chores. But she looks to her left, and she doesn't see Papa. She looks to her right, and she doesn't see Mama. Okay, so for just one moment, she can play with Leaf. She lets herself become small. She hops on Leaf's back, and off they go, sailing through the air. They're whipping along just above the grasses, skidding down the creek and they sink down right into the river stones where her nose fills with tickly bubbles. Are you my teacher? She says to the leaf. Just to make sure, because we should always make sure. Yes, said leaf. Leaf, I have a problem, says the girl. I am jealous. My sister is riding my catling. Well, I thought he was my catling, mine alone. I love my sister, but when I saw that, I felt sad My whole heart is frosted over. It's so heavy, I think it fell out on the floor, and I just want to leave it there, where no one can find it, and it can never get hurt again. The girl felt quiet. Leaf was quiet, too. Until finally she sighed. But, but, agreed Leaf, nodding his head. I know that that is not brave, girl said. Do you want to know what I do when I feel jealous? said the leaf. Yes, she said. It is natural to feel jealous sometimes, said the leaf, but it is only a feeling. If you stay with a feeling, it will change. So I laugh at jealousy. When I notice jealousy happen, I just laugh. That silly feeling, I let it go. We should feel our feelings, but always remember, they are just feelings. We can just let them go, like water running through our hands. Maybe you have to let it go 20 times. A fish that keeps running into your hands all the time, you just keep opening your hands. Poof, you let it go. Feelings are a reaction and a reaction is a habit. Why have a habit that shackles us to sadness? I let it go. And then I have the habit of freedom instead. Here is the truth, girl. Everything that is true has no end. So jealousy, you see, is suffering only for suffering's sake. There is no need to ever be jealous. What is true will never end. We need only be our best selves. If we do this, everything which is not true around us will fall away. Now, girl became a skeptic. She wondered what Leaf could possibly have experienced to compare to her own broken heart. When do you feel jealous, she said, suspiciously. And Leaf leaned back. Well, listen. I grew up in the sun, playing in the wind with all my brothers and sisters. We were all one with our mother. We helped her survive. We were her hands, drinking in the air and sunlight. It was wonderful. But there comes a season when growing is done. For mother to continue growing at that time would kill her. It would kill all of us. So my mother killed us instead. She cut us all off, and we flew away in the wind. For the first time, we were free. 
All my life I played with the wind, and now it had me for its own. It took me here, you see. I flew, and now here I will stay, becoming part of the creek bed. Am I jealous of my mother's branches? Of her warm roots? Girl, yes, but then I laugh, and I laugh, and I laugh because now I am soil. I relax into pieces. I drift around a seed, and that seed will eat me. And then slowly I will become a root. This was always going to happen. So I was never not the root. I was never not the soil. I was never not leaf flying free through the air. It is all happening at once, all of it. So just laugh at jealousy when you notice it, girl. Let it run right through your hands. Feel it and let it go. Stay in your worth. Rise up to your best self. Tulu tickled each of the boys' faces lightly with the tail of the carved catling, but they were silent, still listening, with their mouths hanging open. Fly with the wind, the leaf said, because what is true is endless. You are never alone. You are soil, and you are catling, and you are root, and I am you, and you are me, and this is never not so. Tulu put the toy down between them, and the boys stared at it. Delora smiled. You've been meditating, she said. Tolu shrugged. A little. It's funny how it changes things. So often we don't let ourselves know what we know, Lelora said. That was beautiful, Tolu. Ah, <laughs> I just happened to be around when a wise old leaf came passing me by, that's all. Lelora smiled. But there's a talent in that, though, isn't there? Being open and in the right place, at just the right time, and knowing how to listen. Tulu smiled. Ah, yeah, I suppose there is. Thank you. You're welcome, she said. Chapter 60 Fern Lalora gave Fern a great bag to see what she could forage from the hills. Shenandoah raised an eyebrow as Fern happily wandered off. She looked at Lalora. You're letting her go out all on her own? Lelora laughed. <laughs> My children are survivors. Usually, so far. I'm so sorry, Shenandoah, I didn't mean... The older Chiriclo woman waved this away, busying herself with her bowstring. The sinew had snapped and she just... Ah, hell. Shenandoah looked up at Lelora again. It's just that Fern is not such a child anymore, she said. True. Lelora stood and looked around. There were no columns of smoke on the horizon anywhere she could see. Just rolling hills. She won't need to go far. Fern? Fern turned, irritated. Yes? Lelora tapped her wrist and held it up overhead. In response, Fern raised both her own wrists, showing her mother that, yes, yes, she was wearing her spiked bangles. Like always, mother. Lelora glanced at Shenandoah victoriously, but the musician remained grimly unimpressed. You're right, of course, Lelora said. But we will not always be here to protect her. Shenandoah bent back down to her task. That is true, too, she said. She'd grown up with a river caravan, and every one of them was dead now. Every one of her children had died from disease and skirmishes. And when organized people invited her to join them, Shenandoah understood she was a sorry sight indeed. She knew they thought she was too cautious that her people had simply had bad luck. 
Shenandoah would have given anything to change her past. She knew that she spoke to others as if she could reach back across time to warn her own past self. And she also knew that, just like her younger self, others rarely listened. They were polite. They nodded. They felt sorry for her, but they did not listen. The bowstring cut whitely into her fingers as Shenandoah held it taut. And then something caught her eye. A man was coming towards them on Lopeback. Even from a distance, they could see the tautness of his shoulders, and that his face was pinched with hunger, and that he was Yang. Chapter 61 Ogodai. The Yang rider made place at their fire. Jericho night fires were an open invitation to all, as trade was welcome at any time by any comer. But this man... Ogodai watched him with irritation. The man's cheap shoes. His pigeon-toed stride. He knew the man was not here for trade. The rider said nothing. Only stood warming himself, glancing over now and again at Tolu and Ogodai, taking their measure in a way Ogodai did not like. Ogodai nodded at Lalora, who faded back with the children. Then he could hear them laughing softly bells in the near distance, as if to let him know where they were, connecting themselves to him by their laughter in the dark. When Ogodai put his own hands out to the fire for warmth, the visitor withdrew his own, his small yang eyes darting away. And that said everything Ogodai needed to know. He turned on him. State your purpose, he said. What? The yang visitor said. Ogodai strode towards him. What do you want? The smaller man stumbled back, and almost fell. I... State your purpose, Ogodai said. The visitor straightened. You're executioners, are you not? Ogodai was still. The camp fell silent, and he felt the power of his family arrayed behind him in the dark, flint knives in their teeth and hands, ready to spring at his first signal. Who wants to know, Ogodai said. Their visitor looked at the ground. A family with men to be rid of, Ogodai's face hardened. You are not from the king. Thereby, your captives must not have been tried at court. They are innocent. You come by night. You insult my family with this request. Wash your own family in their blood, Ogodai said, turning away. We are not for hire. Chiriklo worked by royal commission only. What do you take us for? His nephews materialized behind the man, seizing his arm so quickly he dropped his short blade into the fire ring. You misunderstand me, he said. Ogodai shook his head. Get him out of here. Tulu, you go with them. Even though that's a bit of a cliffhanger, the next episode is going to be worth the wait, I promise. This is Paula Schmidt. And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to visit eveningskingdom.com and subscribe for free so you never miss an episode because (laughs) I am so sorry. You're going to have to wait two weeks for the next one because yes, I am now posting on a bi-weekly schedule, which has been amazing. I have a life again. I even went camping for aliens this weekend. More on that soon. But subscribe and I'll send you a quick little automated note each time a new episode is out. And I have a little something extra coming soon, available only to email subscribers. I love, love, love Halloween. 
probably no surprise there. And I have some fun Halloween-y vibe short stories I'm going to record soon. And maybe also at some point, some hypnosis slash meditation type stuff. Let me know if that intrigues you. I think that could be fun. Um, yeah, eveningskingdom.com. Please have a click and subscribe. Okay, so aliens, extraterrestrials. I know we're not alone. I love thinking about this. Are they among us now? I think so. Are they observing us? Waiting for us to come of age, so to speak, as a species? I think so. Because humanity, surely we're still in our infancy. I hope so, anyway. And I'd love to make contact, to learn something from them, if they would so deign. Who wouldn't? Anyway, so, when Psychedelicious Lex and I were running errands, and her good friend Evan mentioned a friend of a very good friend, took the most incredible footage of what certainly seemed to be some sort of extraterrestrial scout. We had to see it. And it was awesome footage. Daylight. This small, seemingly volleyball-shaped vessel scooching along through the trees. Maybe, possibly, dematerializing and then rematerializing now and again. About 200 feet from where Chad, our cyclist friend, was standing. And Chad had his phone, so he took two videos. This was 5-something a.m. He was on a bike race across the entire state of Colorado. Totally unexpected sighting. Anyway, we decided we needed to camp right there, exactly where he saw it, and, you know, see. So, people tell me I am imaginative. Imaginative slash crazy. And I'm always, you know, because I've never been anyone but me, to my knowledge. But this is how imaginative, apparently, I am. I got <laughs> so hyped up about this whole thing, and yes, also so extremely caffeinated that it did not occur to me, sincerely, that we might not see this vessel, <laughs> that we might not make contact. Should I admit this on a recording? Uh, you listened this far, my friends, so whatever. Colorado has a certain impact on me, it would seem. I have a certain impact on me, it would seem. Anyway, so we go out there with Evan. We're all listening to Bob Lazar, as you do. And we meet up with Jamie and Chad. It's gorgeous. Wildflowers, an alpine valley, a full moon. It's the largest alpine valley in the world, actually. We're lying there looking up at the seeming absence of any otherworldly vessels. And Evan and Chad start talking about repeating cycles. Like, <laughs> maybe what if it was an escaped balloon? And somebody sees this, they think it's possibly an otherworldly vessel, but maybe it's also a balloon. So they go back out themselves with a balloon to see if it looks like it. The balloon gets away, someone else sees a balloon, thinks maybe it's a vessel, and the cycle repeats unendingly. As it happens, we brought a balloon. Just to see how it looks in the morning, we're going to let it waft along the trees and compare it to his footage. We set an alarm for 5 a.m., get up, it's freezing. We go for a walk, hear a rattlesnake, Lexi sees a deer racing full tilt through the trees. It is gorgeous. Freezing. <laughs> it's just us. There's some here and there through hikers on the Colorado Trail. No aliens. 
<laughs> so out comes the balloon and you know what? The way it floats, man, <laughs> maybe, maybe it was a balloon all along. I can't tell you how bummed we were. Strong balloon vibes on that footage, but also maybe not. Who knows? However, we did catch our balloon afterwards, so maybe we broke the cycle. I know you're curious about this video. If you want to see it, including a documentary Evan made, which is pretty awesome and includes Chad's original footage, Google video I made of a UFO in San Luis Valley, Colorado. That's video I made of a UFO in San Luis Valley, Colorado. I mean, might as well, right? So <laughs> this is what I'm doing with my newly re-spacious time, friends. I am camping for aliens. Did I write a word this weekend? No, <laughs> but I had a fabulous bratwurst. That said, I think an alpine valley will appear in book three of Evening's Kingdom. I haven't talked too much about it since it's still in tender stages, but book three is an enemies to lovers spinoff in this same world I'm reading to you right now. It's just a few generations down the line. That's all I'll say for now. So this week, I heard from the very lovely Kelsey of Lucy's Market in Alaska. That's lucyalaska.com. Kelsey is a cheese lady and a chef who is crushing it at work, providing gourmet delights to delighted Alaskans and putting in crazy long 80-hour weeks, which sometimes involve driving around. And she writes, I just can't stop listening when the opportunity presents itself. And... Your aside about PJs at the end of a recent episode brought me tears. So, Kelsey and I haven't met yet, but Kelsey is the sweetheart of our very dear friend, Pat Galt, who is one of those PJs I mentioned. Kelsey, I'm so honored you're enjoying the story and that it's keeping you company on long days. Thank you so much for listening. Not only does Kelsey have a book recommendation, the Gentleman Bastards by Scott Lynch, which looks super fun, thank you, and what an awesome title. She says we are welcome to fill up her driveway in our schoolie for as long as we'd like. And oh my god, girl, yes, please, we would love that. I've never been to Alaska, and it would be a joy to meet you and to see Pat again, and also to steal your gorgeous cat, Ethel. <laughs> Basically, we'll come to Alaska to steal your cat, and also for hugs and hiking and Many gourmet delights from Lucy's Market. If you're in Alaska, definitely check them out. LucyAlaska.com Quick side note on books. <laughs> Dude, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. I finished the first book. I finished it in a coffee shop, actually, because that's a moment, right? You're never going to read those last chapters for the first time again. And I'm in there reading Danny's last chapter, and it's a hot day to begin with, and I'm drinking hot things, and I'm all red. <laughs> and we've had some miscarriages ourselves. So Danny's seen, this isn't a spoiler, but if you know, you know what I'm talking about. So I was basically as close to ugly crying as you can get in public without totally losing it. And these really sweet ladies come over to me, all smiles about how I'm inspiring them to start up their Bible study again. <laughs> because the edition of Game of Thrones that I have, it's like this little onion skin leather bound thing. And I always read with a pen in hand, like a tick. 
of mine just underlining. And so I looked like, yeah, Bible study. Um, so that was funny. So I'm like all teary explaining to them that, no, I'm reading about dragons and warlords and how wonderful it is. Anyway, uh, I'm trying not to start book two immediately because then that one will be over too. And also because George R. R. Martin has got to be one of the most addictive storytellers I have ever read. I have so much work to do. I don't have time for this. Can you hear me slipping book two off my shelf? Okay. So many rambles from me this time, but you know what? I'm happy. Even though my birthday is right around the corner, I have always, always hated my birthday for my entire life, basically. I have always gotten really weird and secretive around it and generally just prefer to hide it out. Um, my life is not at all where I want it to be. So a birthday is always kind of like a crap milestone, you know, like, ah, man, here I go, just failing around the sun again. <laughs> I think I'm not alone in this. I'm positive the rest of the year, like in actuality, but my birthday is not my favorite thing, my unfavorite thing. I mean, like Uma, so many of us do not particularly want the particular ticket we received from the fates. And yet here we are, on the ride regardless. But like Uma, we can choose to become the hero of our own story. We can make friends along the strange paths life forces us down. We can witness and dance with the magic, the mystery, which connects all of us, because life is magic. And so we can enjoy our stupid birthday just because. Because we're alive, and that's enough. That's more than enough. That's pretty amazing if you think about it. So, <laughs> thanks for hanging out and spending some of your alive time here with me, friend. If you've got a birthday coming around the bend too, happy birthday, you lucky animal. And if you are enjoying a blessed reprieve from uncomfortable milestones, you know, have a happy regular day. Well may it please you. This is Paula Schmidt, and thank you for listening. Please subscribe via eveningskingdom.com and stay tuned. The rest of the story is just down the road.